We're going to continue this morning in our studies from the book of Acts. If you would open your Bibles to chapter 15, Acts chapter 15, uh, we'll begin there in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 35. Again, the book of Acts chapter 15. In the opening verses of the very short epistle uh, from the Lord's brother, Jude, we have this admonition from him that was certainly to those to whom he wrote that letter, but I believe it's a continuing uh, concern and it's a continuing admonition uh, for the church throughout all of the ages. Uh, he instructs the church that we are to contend for the faith that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. That is, the, the faith refers to the body of truth, the testimony to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that we are to always to stand firm as to that which is true and to that which is not true, we need to expose it. And it is always a matter of concern for the church that the purity of the gospel be preserved for the power of the gospel unto salvation to be applied as it is proclaimed. And certainly over the course of history, uh, there have been uh, many conflicts, many controversies, and a great deal of contention uh, within the church as these things were debated and discussed and argued about. But the, the goal for the people of God has always been to be sure that the gospel is preserved in its purest form, again, so that its power may be applied for succeeding generations. So we have the great example here before us today of a place in the course of the history of the church. Of course, the apostles were still alive. Uh, they were uh, ministering, and, and of course, they were unique uh, to the history of the church, the, the life of the church with their uh, unique uh, spiritual giftedness. And yet, still, the church became troubled with a departure from the gospel. And so there came a time that that issue, that departure, that attempt to dilute the gospel by adding something to it, that it had to be addressed and that the correct formula for the gospel uh, must be proclaimed and preserved for the church. And so uh, we want to look at this. It's often referred to as the Jerusalem Council uh, in which uh, the church is called together and they, they listen and they discuss and to our benefit, the gospel was defended and the gospel uh, was preserved. And so uh, let's look uh, beginning at verse 1 in Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea 
and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to be apostles to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after they had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the, the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders uh, with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas and Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the, the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, uh, greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone up from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us to come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. 
farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word. I thank you that in your providence, in your wisdom, in your design, that you have preserved for us the truth, the truth about your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may be saved. And Lord, we thank you for that. And I pray that we would be ever faithful and ever diligent in defending uh, your truth, that, that we would be faithful in proclaiming accurately your truth. Again, so that those who believe would be encouraged and strengthened and those that have not yet believed, that they would come uh, to faith through this imperishable seed of the new birth, that by that new birth, by, by your work in them, that you would cause them to believe the truth and be saved. Bless us this day as we study. We pray that your son Jesus would be exalted in all things. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We find here in chapter 15 a bit of a pattern that will be repeated uh, at least seven times, but really more than seven times throughout the history of the church. That the church at times, in response primarily to a doctrinal crisis. That is, that, that there are those that are perverting, they are distorting, and then proclaiming uh, a deluded form, an erroneous form of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Probably the most notable of these, sometimes referred to as ecumenical councils, is the council at Nicaea in 325 and the council in 451 at Chalcedon. And you can find, you can Google various creeds that were written as a response uh, to the crisis, to the issue, to the departure, to the dilution uh, of the gospel so that the gospel could be clarified, so, so that it would be preserved for the sake of the proclamation uh, for all generations. And so the church is incredibly unwise if we do not take advantage of those who have gone before us that help give us insight into the truth of the Word of God. Now, Baptists uh, have historically described themselves as people of the book, and I am glad that we are so described. And we have talked at length uh, on many different occasions about the reformational principle of the five solas, namely of Scripture alone. And that is true, that the Bible is our ultimate and final authority. The Bible is always true. Now, I want you to be clear on this. The church can err, and I can err, about what I understand the Bible to be saying. But the Bible will never be wrong. And so, again, the church has often given us guidelines over the course of history that are incredibly useful 
to giving us the correct understanding of what the Bible means by what uh, it says. And, and so these things are helpful, and we, we see this pattern established of calling the church together and making a particular statement uh, in terms of this is what we have found to be true, uh, this is the era that we are exposing, and this is the, the truth that we're going to embrace and insist upon going forward, okay? And so we see this first, beginning in, in verse 1, what Luke describes for us, and I, I kind of define as the destructive assertion. Uh, that is, that that which was being uh, uh, emphasized, that which was being taught, was actually destructive to the gospel. It was destructive to the church. It placed the souls of men and women and boys and girls in peril. And it, we're told that some men, undefined, not identified, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. What were they teaching them? that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That is, that you must submit yourself to a prescribed ritual. There is a work that precedes the gospel before God would be willing to save you. And that is a very dangerous error, even a heresy that places, uh, uh, that, that dilutes the gospel. Think of it this way, that the gospel is like gasoline. If you look at your gas gauge on your vehicle, and it shows that you have a half a tank of gas, and you say, well, I always like to drive around with a full tank, but there's not a gas station here. I'll just fill it up with water. That way my tank would be full. Now, by your addition to that gasoline, you have diluted that gasoline, and you will probably destroy the engine of your car. And so when you add to the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you destroy it by diluting it. You place the souls of people who will hear this in danger. And so whether they were saying that this was some type of prerequisite, whether they were saying it was a a meritorious type of work, or whether it was a necessary consequence. That is, you're not genuinely saved unless you submit to circumcision. All of these things would be in error. And so they're going to clarify uh, the issue. Now, these, these types of struggles, they continue. Now, as I like to say, we, we Baptists like to name names and take our Baptist bus and drive over groups and then back up and drive over them two or three times, back and forth, back and forth. Whether it be the Roman Catholics, whether it be the Church of Christ, you, you name the group. I mean, it's always open season on any of us, on any of them from us Baptists. But folks, I drive over us Baptists too. And I back up and I pull forward and I back up again and I go forward. We love to criticize Church of Christ and other groups for saying that you must be baptized in order to be saved, okay? And that is a dangerous thing. That, that in, but, but when I listen to people give me their testimonies, they're always telling me, this is what I did. This is what I did. 
This is how I got saved. This is what I did. Now the emphasis in salvation is what? This is what God did on my behalf for my salvation. And so we need to be careful. And we've designed in the Southern Baptist Church this whole thing. Well, you know, when I was 6 years old or I was 12 years old or whatever it was, I made a decision. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. That's how I got saved. No, you got saved, as we'll see in chapter 16, because just like Lydia in Philippi, God opened your heart to believe the gospel. And so we, we make some dangerous errors still. Now, I was told this week, in fact, imagine somebody correcting and rebuking me. I, I just see myself as kind of above that kind of thing, but, but people still like to do it as a hobby. But one of my little cliches is before I say something that I really want you to think about and know that people disagree with me, is I'll say, this is why nobody likes me very much. Now, again, I'm, I'm being a little silly. It's, and again, it's something to call your attention to it. I want you to think about it. But I was told, Tim, you seem to take a bit of stubborn pride in some things like that, of always being controversial, always being in the minority. And I said, well, maybe you're right. But here's the thing. The number one thing is I want to be right. No matter what the numbers are, who's for, who's against, I want to be right. Not, not to win the argument for my sake, but so that the gospel will be spoken with great clarity. And, and so, again, we, we want to emphasize that, that there's a danger anytime that you add something to the gospel. It's, it's interesting that um, many times I will listen uh, to pastors and, and they will get kind of the historical doctrinal facts about the person and work of Christ. They get it very right. They, they do a pretty good job there. And then they start with the, this whole business of, you know, bow your head and close your eyes and raise your hand and come down this aisle and do this and shake my hand and sign my cards and all of this. Now, I told the folks in our new members class this morning, let me be really, really clear, okay? There'll be a lot of people in heaven that have asked Jesus into their heart, okay? All right? That, that, the danger is there'll be a lot of people in hell that have asked Jesus into their heart, okay? And here's the thing. There will be nobody in hell. There will be zero persons in hell. There will be absolutely nobody in hell that has repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the difference? You see the difference? Now again, I, I'm sure most of this stuff is done, a lot of times done well-meaning. We want to make the gospel simple. We want people to respond. We want them to come to Christ. But it's a very dangerous way of getting people off track because we're saved by God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And to say that praying this prayer is repenting and believing is not really true. Okay? Repenting and believing, repenting and believing is repenting and believing. Okay? And there's a distinction. And that's why I don't, I don't find it particularly helpful. I think it's more misleading than useful. 
to get people uh, to do that. I know a lot of people disagree with me, and I've told this week, you know, I disagree. Well, you know, I'll defend your riding as an American to be wrong, but you can tell me I'm right for the first million years that we're in heaven, okay? How about that? So, but there is a type of contending. We, we do not want to be mean-spirited, and I'm, I'm, listen, I'm quite sure many of you say, well, Tim, you really do come across as a jerk sometimes. And I apologize. That is not what I want to do. Okay? But I do want to be abundantly clear about what the truth is and what the gospel is. And I believe, biblically speaking, that is the concern of the biblical writers. And so this was addressed quickly. We see in verse 2 that this is responded to with some designated messengers. And notice there in verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had... No small dissension and debate. Now, I think probably that's a bit of an understatement. I'm going to say there was a pretty big brouhaha, okay? There was a ruckus there in the church because they weren't for one minute going to allow this type of era to be promoted and passed on, okay? Now, I t- I, listen. I desire peace in the church. I I want people to get along. I think it's important. I think it's a horrible testimony when the church looks at the world and, and, you know, we're the fighting fundamentalist. You know, we're always bickering about this, that, or the other. It breaks my heart. But we do have to contend without being contentious. Now, sometimes we have to get edgy, okay? Sometimes we have to get pointed. But we, we do have to always... Uh, contend, and there was a, some contention, and probably some contentiousness going on uh, here. And so uh, they were sent to Jerusalem to take up uh, the question, and they're going to go to the apostles who have remained in Jerusalem. And this is probably 48, 49, 50 A.D. This is a good bit after Pentecost, and all of these things. The church has been uh, in existence for a couple of decades. Uh, And notice there also we mentioned elders previously. And so evidently the church was utilizing uh, elders as a part of their leadership structure uh, there uh, in uh, Jerusalem. And so on the journey, uh, we're told there in uh, verse 3 that they want to tell uh, the the people in Phoenicia and and Samaria, presumably uh, either churches and synagogues or or both, uh, that... uh, They wanted to tell them that God, through his gospel, was converting Gentiles to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was uh, celebrated uh, along uh, their way. And so arriving in Jerusalem, uh, they are welcomed uh, by the church, by the apostles, and by the elders. Uh, interestingly, I, I'm often asked about uh, polity in, in the church and everything, and we see the, at least three of the four groups that we can talk about in the course of the church. We see the church, the, the membership. Uh, we see the apostles. Now, there are no more apostles. I've told you this. If you go to a church and apostle so-and-so stands up to preach, uh, go out that back door more quickly than you would if I brought out my snakes, Okay. You know, every, people have told me, Tim, when you bring the snakes out, we're leaving, okay? And, and so I'll be right with you. But if somebody says, hello, I'm apostle so-and-so, uh, that's more dangerous than the snakes, okay? There are no more apostles. 
But there's still those that the church appoints as elders. And then, of course, there are deacons who assist in the service of, of the church. And so uh, they gather and they hear uh, from uh, uh, the missionary team, Paul and Barnabas, uh, about what has been going on, how the gospel's been effective in the, uh, the Gentile world, how uh, when they go and, and preach the gospel, uh, there are those that receive it with joy, and then there are those that try to kill them, okay? And, and so that's uh, the nature of the gospel. It, it, it does divide. It is good news, but it is divisive. And so uh, they tell them all that God uh, had done there uh, in their missionary endeavor. Now, we move to, the, to verse 5, and we see that this issue that prompted their journey to Jerusalem uh, continues, and we see this disagreement with those of the Pharisees, okay? And they're described as believers, so I'm going to assume that they were genuine, genuine believers. Uh, I'm going to assume that this was a well-intentioned mistake. Now, people can be mistaken about things. But then there's also those that, in a devilish and very deviant and devious type of way, they seek to undermine quite intentionally. They have a plan to destroy the church and destroy the gospel, okay? And, and so um, that's a threat. That's always a threat. Uh, but even well-meaning, well-intentioned people make errors that sometimes have to be corrected uh, by, uh, by the church. And so the Pharisees, once again, restate there is a necessity uh, to circumcise these Gentiles. Again, uh, the Jews, uh, since the time of Abraham, have practiced circumcision as a sign of the unique covenant uh, that God uh, formed uh, with them. It was the sign of the older covenant, we don't we don't think much about that. We think of it primarily as a medical procedure, uh, kind of a in America at least, kind of a universal uh, type of preventive care, preventative uh, care. Uh, but for for the Jews, it was that constant reminder of they were a special people, cut off from the world, set apart to God looking forward to the one who would ultimately be cut off from this world, namely the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Okay, And so they were arguing that there is a work that you must do to contribute, to, to merit salvation, namely this particular old covenant sign. And so they were trying to understand the relationship, really, between Old Covenant and New, okay? Uh, I mentioned this morning, the Pharisees, these folks insisting on circumcision, they would be what we would call the conservative group. Interesting. They were the conservative. They were trying to conserve the old ways. Guess who the good guys were? The progressives. They were the ones trying to show that something had fundamentally changed. Now, I could get into a lot of playing with those two words, but I thought you might find that a, a bit 
interesting. But what were they, were, they were trying to conserve was something that had passed its shelf life, its usefulness uh, as a religious symbol, as a religious practice, as a sign of God's approval. And it had been actually superseded by the external sign of baptism giving to all upon their profession of faith, okay? Circumcision kind of passively participated in by the subject, okay? Baptism actively participated in by a willing candidate upon their baptism. We call that sometimes credo-baptism. It's interesting, years ago, uh, Dale got involved with a, a Bible study in, in my hometown uh, with uh, some Presbyterian ladies, which really was a red flag for me. I've told you about my understanding of the Presbyterians a, as a child. That has been modified. That's been changed. I hold Presbyterians in high regard uh, now. And, but but she, she began, I'd never, I, I just thought baptizing babies was the goofiest thing I'd ever heard of. I'll just be fair with you, okay? I mean, the little bit that I knew about it, I was like, what? What are these people thinking? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. You know what? I mean, it's not in the Bible. I mean, there's just no warrant for it. And then she said, well, they've explained it to me that it's the parallel with circumcision in the Old Testament, sign of the covenant. And I thought, well, it's still crazy, but okay. If that's their, if that's their deal, that's their deal. But again, circumcision... It's just a physical mark. It really didn't do anything internally. But not only do we have that visible external sign under the new covenant, baptism, we've got a new and better and effective seal of the covenant, which is the work of the Holy Spirit that Paul describes as the seal of the Holy Spirit, the mark of our new birth. So again, the difference is in a, a dead, inert a sign, symbol of the covenant, and an active and powerful and effective sign, namely the seal of God's Holy Spirit. And so that circumcision has been superseded by what? This powerful work that we know of as the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the new covenant uh, believer. And so they are absolutely not going to yield they're going to dig in their heels and say, this proposing of, this promotion of the idea of circumcision, this adding to the gospel is actually a subtraction. It is a diminishing of the truth and the power of the gospel. The reality of what God does in salvation, of what it means uh, to be converted, and it's incredibly uh, dangerous. Now, one of the interesting things about this particular study, and it's, it's really kind of an interesting thing all through the book of Acts, is kind of the chronology, both in course of world history, the timing of the events, and then the, the biblical order. And I'm going to very tentatively say that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatian church after the Jerusalem council. Okay, there are commentators that see it that way, but guess what? 
There are commentators that see it another way that he wrote the letter before. It is interesting, and, and it's kind of a parallel. Some of you that, that think the book of Revelation was written before 70 A.D. because John doesn't mention the destruction of the temple. How can you write a book of the Bible without mentioning this monumental event, the destruction of the temple? Well, again, kind of argument from silence. Well, the argument that Galatians was written before the council is what? Paul doesn't seem to directly quote the decision of that council in defense of his argument against circumcision and its danger. Now, again, I said I'm very tentatively, I'm, I'm going to hold that view loosely. It seems like in Acts 2, that's, I mean, excuse me, in Galatians 2, that Paul is saying, we went to Jerusalem and here's kind of what happened. But the, whatever the chronology, the order, the arguments are the same. That Paul and Peter and James all stood together and said, no. That we've seen this and we understand what God is doing and it is an era to think of the necessity of the practice of this ancient seal. Now, one of the things that I'm often criticized for is being crass or crude or something along those lines. And again, you know, I don't know probably some truth and I probably need to repent and but I do love the apostle Paul and his suggestion to those that would desire to practice circumcision and uh, I'll just I'll leave it to you to go look it up I believe that's Galatians chapter 5 but he's very straightforward and hey if if, if you think if, if you're gonna if you're gonna argue for this you need to finish the job okay and so um that's pretty blunt, that's pretty brutal, that's pretty crude, that's pretty crass, okay? So that's my, def- my, that's my defense of some of the things I say and do. Paul did it. All right, let's move forward. Let's look at this deliberation by the apostles and uh, these elders. And, and we see there beginning uh, in verse 7, uh, Peter's statement, he is the first that is recorded to speak. And we looked at this incident. Uh, where he is uh, uh, given this vision and then sent to the, the house of uh, Cornelius, and uh, uh, the gospel is preached, and, and, and Peter understands that the gospel is something that's, that's going to be received by grace uh, through uh, faith. And so uh, that, that they were seeing these things, and it was ample testimony, and even the Spirit was working in both Samaritans and Gentiles, manifesting himself in the supernatural sign of uh, speaking in tongues. Look at verse 8. And God knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a a, a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We have not been able to honor God perfectly under the terms of the Old Covenant. In fact, it's been so perverted that Jesus indicted the Pharisees. If you go back into the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find a heading that's entitled, The Seven Woes. And he says to the Pharisees that you make your converts twice as much the son of hell as they were previously by what you do with the law of God. And so... In the same spirit, they're arguing here. And so their conviction, verse 11, but we believe 
that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That salvation is by grace, it is through faith, and that is not of yourselves, okay? Now again, why do I often mention that I believe, and again, this, that minority position, that regeneration precedes our exercise of faith because of what Paul says. It is a gift of God. That it is God, God. But God, while you were dead in trespasses and sin, made you alive. He did a unilateral work in your heart. Again, Acts 16, Lydia, he opened your heart. He gave you the eyes to see. You saw the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You saw the incredible wickedness of your sin, and you believed. You were saved. That's how it works. And so Peter is arguing for the same thing. And in verse 12, both Barnabas and Paul essentially concur uh, that, that this is what we have seen, this is what we believe, that the, the Spirit is, has come on these people as they believe, and they are genuinely manifesting the, the fruit of conversion. And then in verse 13, we see that uh, James is going to uh, make a statement, and it's going to agree with uh, Simon, or he says, uh, Simeon. Now, the issue really at this point for the church wasn't, are we going to preach the gospel to Gentiles? Are we going to allow them to come to the church? That, I don't think that really was the issue. That they had come to understand the Old Testament prophecies, and James quotes there in verse 16 from the book of Amos. And Amos prophesied that the Gentiles would be included in the people of God. And so they believed what? That what Amos was prophesying was being fulfilled by the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles that these people that were not the people of God were now becoming the people of God by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was not the issue. It, it really was, a, it, it was not a theological issue, it was a practical issue in that these nasty Gentiles were coming in messing up their church. And I'm sure there's a lot of nanny, nanny, nanny about that because they were very different from the Jews. We'll get at some of that in just a minute. So, believing that the Gentiles were welcome, it was promised, it was predicted, it was prophesied that Gentiles would be saved. James goes on in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them, one, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. And then he goes on to say, the law has been proclaimed every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, you see these four issues here, and I, I am troubled a bit by them. I, I'll be fair, I... I I'm kind of, I've, I've worked on them all week. I've thought about them all week. I've read 10 commentaries, and, and, you know, my questions still aren't perfectly answered. But he speaks to what is really three ceremonial issues, the issues of related to, to blood and, and the, the food uh, offered uh, to idols and, and, you know, food, meat that's not kosher, it's been strangled. Those are primarily ceremonial issues. And so he's saying to these Gentiles that are coming in, listen, you need to be sensitive to the cultural sensitivities of these Jews. They, they, 
they're going to be repulsed by what you eat. And, and we want to have genuine fellowship. We're going to observe the Lord's table together. We're going to enjoy fellowship meals together. And so out of sensitivity and concern for them, don't do those things anymore, okay? Uh, they're, they're, they're part of the old covenant. They're part of the ceremonial law. They're not part of the eternal moral law. But, they, but these things are going to be divisive. And again, it's that kind of a, a matter of conscience. Uh, there are things that as Christians, as, as mature Christians, when we recognize them uh, as offensive, as something that maybe we do, a practice, we need to be concerned that we do not offend those of a sensitive conscience, okay? That's, that's just a general principle for Christian uh, living. We need to be concerned uh, about others. But then he says to refrain from sexual immorality. In the Greek there is pornea. There's a couple of views. Uh, one is pornea refers to just any act outside of heterosexual marriage. Okay, it's a broad term, okay? And that could be what he's referring to. But that's the moral law. Why, why does he not go through the other nine commandments? Why does he, that, that they're under obligation to, to God's moral law. I mean, okay, don't be immoral, but I'm going to let you slide on lying and stealing and murdering. Well, that doesn't sound quite right. So why, why only that and not the other? And so, now, the other thing that he could have in mind is some marital restrictions uh, in Leviticus chapter 18, uh, which it, uh, basically uh, outlaws marriages within certain types of uh, family relationships. Uh, and the word immorality here is used in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul speaks of a man that has his father's wife, okay? And so he, he's talking about what we might call incest, okay? And, and so he might have that in mind. I'm, I'm, I'm just not truly convinced of, of which issue uh, he has in mind and why he doesn't broaden uh, that, that in saying that the Old Testament moral law is still in force, that 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 it is still useful and good as a guide for how you live, but also thank God that in Christ the law is fulfilled in Him for me. That is, its demands have been met. Okay, we want to be clear about that. Christ's righteous obedience has been credited to me. Okay, everything that God demands. And every sin that I have committed has been paid for by the blood of Christ. So, so remember what Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill the law. And so the God, law has been fulfilled. So I don't know if more was said than this, and, and we only get kind of an edited version. It just kind of perplexes me a little bit. I don't really have the, the answers, and sometimes even the preacher gets a little bit kind of stumped. But, but the point is, and the point is abundantly clear, be careful about the nature of what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And the gospel is not something you earn by your religious performance. The gospel is that which God gives to us by grace, through faith, 
in His Son. And again, Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And the alone is just as important as the other words in that. Okay? And so, uh, James makes that statement, and then he writes a letter. And again, that, that kind of is what comes out of these councils. I mentioned this kind of formed a pattern for how the church would handle uh, issues going forward. And so they, they basically restate there uh, that which they have decided. Okay, No, we are not going to add the right of circumcision. It is not a part of the gospel. It is not a work by which we, that we must perform in order to be saved. Salvation is by God's grace through faith. And that was preserved. And if you think about it, how important it was to make sure the gospel stayed pure at these early stages, early developments uh, in uh, the church. And it's like a straight line. If you want to draw a straight line from here to that back door, if you get off a little bit here at the start, that line's liable to send you out the side door, okay? If you start, get, get off, off bubble early, that line misses its mark. If they had gotten off bubble early with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there would be no gospel for the church today. And so, they are instructed. And so, verses 30 through 35, the decision is delivered, much to the joy of that congregation, and uh, Judas and Silas accompany them there, and they continue to minister, and they preach uh, the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas continue to tr- preach the gospel uh, there uh, in Antioch. And that issue has been reserved, uh, resolved. They have made a statement as to what is true, what the gospel is, what the church is going to proclaim. Uh, we have purity, and we have unity here uh, in, in, in the church. And so... A crucial issue was resolved. Paul would refer to a gospel that includes circumcision or any other work as no gospel at all, a different gospel when he would write that letter to the Galatians. And that this departure, not only dangerous, it is a, a damning heresy. And so, you know, when I, when I hear people give their testimonies, I, I get... As I say, I get a little bit disturbed in that are you relying on what you did? Fill in the blanks. I did this, 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 that, and the other. Or are you relying on what Christ did? The gospel is what God did for us in Christ, and in that we stand, and in that we rest. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the the insight, the wisdom, the discernment, the courage of those that for centuries have gone before us. And they were able to recognize even subtle departures from truth. And they were able to identify the errors and they were able to offer the appropriate correctives so that the gospel of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ would be preserved uh, with uh, great accuracy so it could be proclaimed with great clarity for the sake of even our salvation. We thank you for that. I pray that we would indeed uh, be found faithful, that while we must contend 
that we would not be known as a contentious people. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.